0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. I've got a lot to talk about. Let's get going, okay? Uh, You like my shirt? It's got cacti, cacti on it, on my shirt, yeah. Uh, My daughter, uh, Elise, who will be 17 tomorrow, said, wear your cacti shirt. So that's what I did. All right, who knows who this is? Great, Waldo, that's right. Somebody said you, uh, the first service, which is really rude if you think about it. Okay. So the premise of Waldo is he's in here, and you have to find him. Where's Waldo? That's the whole book. By the way, in the UK, in England, he's called Wally. He has different names in different places. This came out in the 1980s. Um, let's see. In Vietnam, he's Von Long, which makes sense. Uh, in Lithuania, he's Jonas. In Italy, he's Ubaldo. In France, he's Charlie in Deutschland, in Germany, he's Walter. Where's Walter? So, again, the idea is Waldo is in here, and if you look for him uh, hard enough, you'll find it. So, the reason I talk about that is this. I'm kind of leaning us to a place. Today we're talking about uh, this shadowy sort of character in the Old Testament called Melchizedek or Melchizedek, depends on how you want to say it. We're going to call him Melchizedek today. He is sort of this picture of Jesus, but it's not the clearest. And what's super interesting about Melchizedek is there are a few verses about him. We're going to see him today in Genesis 14. If you want to find your way there, that's where we're going to be. And then we see him a thousand years later, a thousand years later, David writes about him in one of the Psalms. And a thousand years after that, he's written about in the book of Hebrews. So he's He's integral, but he's not not everywhere. It's just really kind of interesting. So we're going to look at him today. Now, let's bring us up to speed. I know some of you are first time today. Welcome to you. Thank you for being here. Last week, we talked about Abram and Lot. Uh, These are, Abram is the uncle of Lot. Lot is an orphan. Um, They they both become quite um, wealthy. Uh, they have lots of flocks and things. And in that particular day, long, long ago, the way you knew if somebody was v- very wealthy was because they would have big herds of sheep and cattle and, and goats and that sort of thing. And so both Lot and Abram had lots and lots of, of animals. And they, they moved sort of around together. And they came to a certain place. And they had, uh, each of them had more than the, the land could sustain. And so, Abram, who's older, he's wiser, he's the uncle, he took Lot in as an orphan, he says to Lot, okay, the land can't sustain us both, you choose. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left, you get to pick. This was Abram's, uh, it was very magnanimous of him, actually, to say this, because as the elder, he certainly had the right to say, I'm going to take this and you take the leftovers. But he gave, he gave that privilege to Lot, who should have deferred. I mean, if Lot had any character at all, he would have said, No, no, you took me in. Uh, I learned uh, how to gain this wealth because of you. Uh, I don't really deserve to have first choice. But he didn't. In fact, he made what I would consider a very immature Very self-centered, very ungrateful decision to take the very best of the land. So that's kind of where we find ourselves today. So actually, this is a little bit of a, hey, this is what happens next after Lot had chosen the very best land for himself. For 12 years, they had been subject. Now, they is five different kings. They live sort of near the Dead Sea. There are five kingdoms, um, Sodom, Gomorrah. There are three others. They live under the reign of this king, Keto-Leomer. We're going to call him King Keto from now on. Uh, Just like, why is nobody named Bill uh, in the Old Testament? They're all like these names. So we're going to call him King Keto. Um, they had been subject to King Quito. Evidently, uh, these kings had somebody over them. Uh, maybe he was an emperor or whatever. But anyway, the region belonged to Quito. And they had to pay taxes. But in the 13th year, they rebelled against Kido. It's Like, well, we're not paying any more taxes. I, I like this mostly because... <laughs> I don't like to pay taxes either. You know, it's kind of one of those things. Misery loves company. And thousands of years ago, guess what they complained about? Paying taxes. Now, uh, let me tell you my favorite tax joke, if you don't mind. Thank you. Okay. So, Father O'Malley is at the church, and the IRS calls. And Father O'Malley answers, hello, this is Father O'Malley. And the, uh, the guy says, I'm from the IRS. We're hoping that you can help us. And Father O'Malley says, well, I'm happy to help you. How can I help you? And they say, okay, well, do you, ha- do you know a guy named Ted Houlihan? And he says, I do. And they said, well, is he a member of your church? And he said, well, he is. And they ask him, well, did he donate $10,000 to your church? And Father O'Malley says, he will. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's not that good, but I appreciate it. Sometimes I'll tell you a really good joke, and you just sit there, and that, that was just mediocre. Anyway, so they rebel against King Kido. Now, there's an old expression, if you shoot at the king, don't miss, right? I mean, if you're going to try to take him out, you better not miss. And they, um, they gambled. Hey, we're going to not pay taxes. We don't think he'll do anything. Well, they were, they were wrong, And King Keto comes in and he basically spanks them. And he not only does he take his the taxes, he takes everything. And that's where we find ourselves here. The victorious invaders, King Keto, and he, he ganged up with three other kings, maybe like so this is like a conglomerate army of lots of people. He and his invaders they plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and they headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war, and the food supplies. Now this is um, treacherous. I mean, when you live in an era where food wasn't readily available, now if somebody takes all your food away, well, you're in, you're in the deep weeds. You're really in trouble. So what does this have to do with Abram or Lot? Well, I'm glad you asked. This, this next verse sort of toggles this to something that we care about okay they also captured lot Abrams nephew who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned now uh, I, I just gotta be honest with you he he goes from everything he owns was just because his uncle Abram had given him the opportunity to choose first so he makes this selfish choice and in an instant that selfish choice now he doesn't have anything And there's a little part of me that goes, good, you know? Like if you're older, if if you have some tread on your tires, uh, or you've you've kind of worn them down a little bit, you sort of think to yourself, well, that young punk got what he deserved. And it kind of is true. Here you have Lot, and he is shrewd, and now he's a slave. And that's quite the transition. And it leaves Abram in a dilemma because... Some of us have asked this question before, but this is one of the most difficult questions in the world to answer. When am I supposed to step in? I mean, think about it from Abram's perspective. Lot certainly hadn't done him any favors. He's kinfolk, and I get that, but he hadn't done him any favors. And when to step in, well, you ask questions like, am I going to be helping or am I just going to be enabling Uh, Do they want me to step in? Will they listen to me if I step in? Will it do any good if I step in? Um, Should I not step in and let them experience some of the consequences, some of the negative consequences of the choices that they made? Uh, Will they die if I don't step in? And we run through these scenarios in our mind. Okay, well, this is a bad situation. What do I need to do to help Because sometimes, occasionally, the best way to help is not to do anything, but sometimes you're supposed to step in. Now, obviously, the Bible says you can pray about these things. If you lack wisdom, you ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So first step is obviously I'm going to pray about it because I don't know what to do. I don't know if you all do this, but I sort of come up with a a ledger The reasons to do it and the reasons not to do it. Because really, Abram has two choices here. He can get involved or he can isolate. Now, on the side of isolation, I think one of the things he could say is, well, when given the choice, Lot protected, Lot chose for his family. I'm given the choice, so I'm going to choose for my family. And my family's best interest is served by me not going and doing anything because if Abram chooses to get involved that's going to mean he's gonna have to tangle with a king and three other kings a conglomerate of four kings he's gonna have to tangle with an army that has just had victory over five kings I mean it's not like these people haven't just won so I think there would be cause for caution he probably says I don't know if I want to get involved with that in fact honestly He could say, I don't have a dog in this fight. I pay my taxes. That's why Keto didn't come after me. If he had come after me, I might have to do something. But I don't have a dog in the fight. And then he might just say, you know what? You reap what you sow. Lot's getting what he deserves. I mean, you certainly could do that. And I can imagine Lot didn't care one whit about the whole story until he heard about Lot. And he chooses to step in. Now... I am certain that Abram prayed about it. In fact, while it's not specifically stated in Scripture, most every major decision Abram gets into, he prays about. But look at the next verse. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. I believe Abram is a redneck because the only thing... Missing here are pickup trucks and gun racks. I mean, it's like as my friend Yolanda Johnson once said, oh no, he didn't. Uh yes, he did. And and now all of a sudden Abram is like, oh no, 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 we aren't. And so he goes and he intervenes with his kinfolk. He's probably, Abram, if we knew, if we could research it deeply enough. I'm relatively certain not only is he a redneck, he's probably from Kentucky. I mean, good grief, he's my people. This is what we do. You mess with us, you're messing with all of us. It reminds me of the scenario in a cinematic masterpiece with Patrick Swayze. There are so many. I know that you're going, which one is it? Well, it's this one. Man. But they never next we all handle snakes in Kentucky. How did that not win an Oscar? I mean, literally <laughs> by the way, the elders wanted me to say not an endorsement, uh just so you know, not an endorsement. okay, so you, you've got you've got lot who doesn't deserve to to be rescued, and an older really old guy I mean. Abram is at least 75, he's older, he's wiser, and he chooses to intervene. And when he heard that this was happening, I meant Lot had been foolish. Well, okay, so have you, (laughs) so have I. I mean, how many of us can say I've never done anything that was was rash or uh, unthoughtful? Or selfish. And so, yeah, Lot absolutely messed up. He, he made the wrong choice. But Abram takes the next of kin, his folks. And by the way, I think he takes three other groups of people. I don't know if they're other kings. Uh, they're mentioned a little later. We'll look at them in a second. But he takes some guys, and it is unbelievable that they're not outnumbered. So he takes this ragtag group of, of kin folks. And he heads out to save his nephew Lot. And Abram pursued uh, King Kido's army until he caught up with them. And there he divided his men and attacked during the night. Keto's army fled, but Abram chased them. And there's this strategy involved in war. By the way, this is about 120 miles. Most of the commentators don't believe that he walked or marched that far. It's likely that he took mules or camels or something to get them there with some relative speed. And they surprise attack at night. The strategy of that is uh, you catch them by surprise, number one, and they can't really tell how many of you there are. And so... Even though he's no spring chicken, man, Abram knows how to to win a battle. And so they engage in this battle. They pursue the army. King Keto runs off with the spoils. They get around in front of him. They chase him away, and they collect all of the spoils. This is nothing short of a miracle. This was an older guy with his kinfolks defeating a conglomerate army. I mean it's somewhat miraculous. And the next verse says, Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and the other captives and the inferences, all the other stuff as well. And there's a lesson here that we need to understand and that is Abram was a bigger person. He he gave up any bitterness, resentment. I mean, look, <laughs> it, if I'm Abram, I'm older, I give this younger guy the choice. If I'm him, I think to myself, well, I've helped this kid, I've helped this young man, and I really he may not have been, been young. I, I've helped him all, nearly all of his life, and he does this to me. And yet, he was able to overlook this. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 19.11. It is to a person's honor to overlook an offense. That's not just big offenses. That's small offenses. It's to a person's honor. And frankly, we all hope in our lives we have friends like Abram, a guy that will overlook when we've made a mistake a a person who will uh, give us a second chance or a third chance see we all need somebody to step in every once in a while we need somebody to take uh, a risk on us even though we don't deserve it and in Romans it says God does that he he showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us after we clean up (laughs) that's not what it says even when we don't deserve it. What a great lesson that Abram shows us. Look, you sometimes need somebody to step in. And he did. Okay, so, Abram uh, recaptures or rescues lots and lots stuff and, and everybody else's stuff. It's kind of a bonus. He gets the bonus of, of all the other people's stuff. And so sometimes you get more than you ask for, Recently, we were on a trip, and we had reserved a, an uh, automobile, and it was supposed to be manual transmission and uh, no navigation. And so we get the key, we sign the paperwork, we go get in the car. I start it up, and I'm like, hey, this is, my, this is automatic. And the, the screen is big as, uh, like a 75-inch screen is like, navigation. And Miriam's, well, that's not what we, that's not what we signed up for. It's like, I don't care. Uh, so... Uh, uh, you, you, said, you know, God, God wanted to bless us. Uh, so we got out of there as fast as we could. That's, that's how it works. So um, sometimes you get more than you thought you were going to get. So Abram went to save Lot, but he, he, he gets everything else. He has everybody's stuff. Now, really interesting, this next little bit. It's all been interesting. This is interesting. After Abram returned from defeating uh, King Kido... And the king's allied with him, allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. So uh, this guy has just, you know turned tail and run, he's headed for the hills, and now he hears, "Oh, oh uh, Abram has rescued our stuff." So he comes out to greet him. Now we're going to look at him in just a minute. But we're going to bypass him just for a second. Because it's almost as if uh, Abram ignores him. The guy comes out and It's like, hey, buddy. And then there's the next guy that says, hey, buddy. Then Melchizedek, this is our guy for the day, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abram. And this is our introduction to Melchizedek. Uh, His name is a Hebrew word. It is a compound word of two words. Melech means king. Shedek means righteousness. So his very name means king of righteousness. And righteousness is a word we don't use a lot today, but righteousness basically means being in a right relationship with God. And it says he's the king of Salem. Salem or Shalom means peace. He's the king of peace. Um, most people believe that Salem here really is talking about Jerusalem. Uh, it becomes Maybe it was, it was Jerusalem before Jerusalem was Jerusalem. It was in this spot and then Jerusalem becomes the town. And so in this one individual, you, you have the idea that he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. And we see language like that around Jesus. He's called the Prince of Peace. Uh, We're told in Romans that no one is righteous except coming through Jesus. And so there's this sort of debate around who Melchizedek was. Now, David doesn't help us, really. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's like, okay, what does that mean? In the order of is not language we usually use. Um, We would say cut from the same cloth or in the same vein, something like that. But... There, there, have been, there have been debates around who was Melchizedek. Now understand something. This is a long time before Jesus. This is a long time before Moses. I mean, it is a long, long time ago. So I don't know if you know this. In, in church life, we have these people called church fathers These are guys like a long time ago that wrote about certain things about the church. And so there's a guy named Origen and Origen says, oh, well, this guy, Melchizedek, he was an angel. And then there was another guy and his name was Ambrose. And Ambrose said, no, no, this guy, he was, uh, Melchizedek was, um, he was the pre-incarnate Christ. He was Jesus before Jesus was Jesus. And then the the earliest church fathers, even way long ago before there was a church, the the Hebrews used to think, or maybe even still teach or taught, that this was Shem, who was Noah's son. Not to be confused with Shemp, the worst of the three stooges. Okay, not him. Shem, S-H-E-M. Now, in Hebrews, it says, this will clear it all up for us, about Melchizedek. He's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Well, that clears it up. I mean, it's obvious who he is. Who is he? And that is a question I don't know that I have an answer to. Um, But what it says here, he is resembling the Son of God. So if you were to take out your wallet and pull out your driver's license, there's a picture of you. It resembles you, right? It's good enough so if you get pulled over and the police officer asks for your ID, that you show it to them or her and she can look at it and say, oh yeah, that's you. It resembles you. It's not you, but it looks like you. And so there's this character named Melchizedek, and I don't think it was Christ, although it could have been. I'm not sure that's wrong. But he, he gives us a snapshot of who Jesus will be. I think that's why he keeps coming up. Uh, he, he's in uh, the, one of the Psalms. He's in, he- by, in fact, Hebrews has three chapters kind of wrapped around this. The debate in Hebrews is... According to the Jewish mind, Jesus was supposed to come through the line of Levi. He was supposed to be part of that tribe. And he wasn't. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, well, Melchizedek wasn't either. There wasn't even a Le- This is before Levi. This is before Moses. He was kind of the purest of priests because he was a priest when there weren't any priests. Melchizedek was sort of a, a trendsetter and look at what he does and see how it kind of reflects who Jesus is. The first thing he does is he refreshes. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought to uh, Abram and his army. He brings them bread and wine. Where do we see that? Never see that in the Bible. I mean, you you can't miss the the symbolism. In, In communion, what do we take? We take bread and we take wine. Bread is the symbol of life. Wine is the symbol, a symbol of joy. By the way, we're going to be taking communion uh, next Sunday if you're here. So if you want to take communion, the Bible tells us to not take communion without being prepared. So you have a whole week to prepare. And there's something spiritual about sharing a meal together. And Melchizedek invites uh, Abram and his men, his, uh, Abram and his kinfolk, and they, they sit down and they break bread together. And he refreshes them. And then he blesses them. He was the priest. Listen to this language. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram saying, Blessed be Abram by, look, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. He uses the language. And I know Josiah did a sermon a while back about the names of God. The name of God that is used here is El Elyon which means uh, he is uh, the sovereign God, the, the, the God above all gods. Because people forever have been, they've been worshiping gods. Uh, the, the Egyptians worshipped gods. You know, uh, people even today in certain uh, places worship lots of gods. And so the title El Elyon means this is the God above all the other gods. So he, he blesses Abram. Hey, uh, you are blessed. He kind of says a prayer for him. And then he does this. He professes, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. He is basically saying, dude, the only reason you won the battle is because God intervened. You, you wouldn't have won without the help of God. And El Elyon, this God above all gods, is the one who did it. And this is a picture right here of the temple of heaven. It's in Beijing. It's ancient. And in China, for centuries, they worshiped many gods. The emperor at one time was worshiped as a god. But every year, one time a year, one day a year, the emperor would go into the temple of heaven and he would offer an animal sacrifice that was perfect to what they called the god who is known only by his name we would say to el Elyon. and so melchizedek is this this figure that points us to a future messiah whose name was jesus all right so the second lesson we're going to learn is this genuine gratitude leads to giving then abram gave him a tenth of everything He wasn't commanded to give. In fact, there was no law to give. This was 500 years before Moses ever gave the law, which says, you know, give 10%. Uh, This was long before there was law. But you, we've all experienced this. Someone will do you a favor, and I think most of us in our hearts feel compelled to do something for that person out of gratitude. They don't ask you for it. You just do it. You're not not commanded. You're compelled. It it, it seems like the right thing to do. Miriam and I, um, we started a practice. We've been married 30-something years. Let me see. 30. She's not in here, so let's go with 32. Uh, We'll go with that. I'm fairly, it's 33 actually we were bo- we were married in 90 what does that mean is that 33? 33 33 okay um, I was just seeing if you're listening so good good for you 33 okay so um, I was pastoring a church in Michigan uh, no New Mexico we were doing a building campaign and if you've never been involved in one of those I don't know that I've ever done one here but what you do is basically you say to your congregation, to your people, uh, please continue to give your tithes, but as God leads you, as God compels you, give over and above, so that we can collect this money, and whatever you know, whatever the building fund is for, we're going to add a wing, or we're going to build a new building, or we're going to move, or whatever it is. There, there's that. That's how it works. So we were in this building fund, and we decided as a family, okay, we're going to continue to tithe, we're going to give our 10%, and we're going to set aside 5% more, and we're going to give that to the building fund. Well, that lasted, usually those things last for two or three years, and it lasted for three years, and at the end of three years, Miriam and I said, okay, well, why don't we just continue to do this, we're sort of in the habit, a lot of stuff is just about getting the habit of it. Why don't we just take our five percent extra, and we'll call it. We'll have a missions fund, and then if we are compelled to give to a, a, an organization or a cause, then we'll have money set aside just for that. We don't have to scramble for it or scrounge. We'll have like a little uh, pot of money that we can use for missions endeavors. Uh, we have a board. Uh, that is connected to this. Uh, Their names are Miriam and Joseph, Uh, and uh, our board, uh, us two, uh, we decide where we're going to give those funds. Now, we don't always give to traditional things. Uh, Miriam has a a good friend who lives in South Africa. She uh, is struggling uh, with her health Um, she had expenses because her mom died, she's single, she can't always work, her health doesn't always allow her to work. And so occasionally, Miriam will come to me and say, would you mind if we gave some money to my friend in South Africa? We always do that. So we, we have opportunity. What it's done for us is it's freed us up to know that when something feels, when we feel the tug of God... compelling us to give, now we have resources to give. It's not the only way. It might not even be the best way. But for us, this has has really changed the way we live our lives. Because as pastor I hear about needs, sometimes we give. Most of the time we give, because we can't. One of the worst feelings I've ever experienced is when I know God wants me to do something and I, I feel like I can't or I won't. Well, now when I feel like God wants us to, to do something, Miriam and I, we, we have that resource to give. I don't tell you that to brag or anything. I just want you to know that was a system that we put in place I'm trying to think, probably 20 years ago. And it's helped us so that we can be givers. One of the things I love about this verse is that Abram, he had just had a great victory. I mean, what he had done was remarkable. He had defeated an army he shouldn't have defeated, frankly. And now, he, out of gratitude to God for what God had done for him, he gave to God. Now, let's jump back and let's talk about the king of Sodom. After Abram returned from defeating um, King Kito and the kings allied with, him, allied with him, the king of Sodom came to meet him in the valley of Shava. that is the, the king's valley. All right, so let's bring ourselves up to speed. Um, Lot was taken out of Sodom. Abram intervenes and rescues him. Gathers him up, comes back to that area. The king of Sodom, his name is Berah. by the way, B-E-R-A. Bera comes out and he greets Abram. And then Melchizedek comes out and he greets Abram and blesses him and refreshes him. And says, uh, this was because of God. He, he reminds him, hey, God did this. And Abram gives him an offering. Now look at what happens the very next thing. The king of Sodom said to Abram, "Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself." And the very next words from scripture from Abram should have been, "Excuse me." Because what did Sodom deserve to be given? I mean, what exactly, what exactly, what percentage of the spoils that Abram had risked his life to get, what did the king of Sodom deserve? I, that's a big fat zero. I mean, if you, if you wanted your stuff back, here's an idea. Go get it yourself. I mean, you know, it's like he didn't even bother to, to attempt it. I got to give it to him. The guy's got guts. I mean, Bera's like, okay, dude, here's what we're going to do. Uh, uh, all of this stuff, you can keep the stuff and give me the people. Now, again, if I'm Abram, I'm saying, uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. There's something about this character, Abram. We don't exactly know why God chose him to be the the founder, the patriarch of of the nation. But there's something about him. And look at how he responds. Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Where have we seen this language? We just saw it, right? This is Melchizedek language. I've made an oath, he's saying, that I will not accept, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I in in Kentucky vernacular, I ain't taking none of your stuff. I ain't taking none of it. That's what he's saying. I don't need your things. God is blessing me. Now, listen. That's hard to do. He had earned it. Look, Abram now has twice shown us, okay, with Lot, he could have just chosen, but he didn't. And with this guy, Barah, King Barah, he could have just said, dude, it's mine. I, I went and got it. He was never, it doesn't seem he was ever so compelled by stuff that he makes a selfish choice. It, my daddy used to have a saying that I would love. I, I just loved it. People would try to get over on him in business or whatever, and daddy would say, if you can live with it, I can live without it. And I always thought, what a great way to live. He would sometimes let himself get the short end of the, of the deal, but he would say to these people, he knew they, were, they knew they were ripping him off, and he knew they were ripping him off, and he would say, okay, if you can live with it, I can live without it. Daddy was saying... I'm not going to be be controlled by stuff. And that seems to be what Abram says here. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to these other guys. Abram was like, "I, I can't speak for anybody else but me. But me and my kin, we're not taking any of this stuff. The temptation is this. There's always temptation that follows victory. People use fire to purify gold and silver in the same way you are tested by the praise people give you. This was a test. Let me give you a practical example of when this happens. You have a victory and then you're tested. Okay, so you're on a diet. You get up one morning and you've lost a pound. And anybody that's ever been on a diet and has lost a pound, what do we do? We cabbage patch. I mean, we're dancing. We're telling people we're, we're putting it on Facebook. Lost a pound. Uh, you know, we're, we're telling everybody. Shouting it from the hilltop. Lost a pound. Now, good job losing the pound. What do you say to yourself that afternoon? You say to yourself, or that evening, you say, you know, I deserve a reward. Yeah? yeah. Anybody? Uh, just me. Maybe you. I think I deserve a little Debbie snack cake. Or two. Or to go to Krispy Kreme and dive into the vat of sugar. You know, we, we say to ourselves, I deserve this because it's a temptation. You lost a pound... You eat a little Debbie, next morning you're up three pounds. That's kind of how it works. Temptation often follows victory. And so here you have this victory, and Melchizedek comes out and says, Dude, you owe everything to God. If it wasn't for God, you would have had no victory. And and the guy from Sodom, he says, "Uh, you should give me some of this stuff. It's yours to give me. And Abram was so wise, he played the movie forward and he said, "You know what? If I keep your stuff, someday you're going to say, I made Abram rich." And there is a psalm, Psalm 15, really short psalm. It it basically asks and answers a question. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live in your holy mountain? The one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. And Abram was like, "Okay, well, I don't need Any of your stuff. Two kings, two different responses. The thing I think that bothers me most about Lot, and he's just a B character in this whole story today. I mean, what did he do? He got captured and then he got rescued. Okay, well, he didn't didn't even have any lines. This happens before God destroys Sodom. Obviously, Sodom's still there. Lot is rescued, he is returned, and then he goes right back to what he was doing. And sometimes God will miraculously rescue us. And before we know it, we've gone right back. And I can't imagine that Abram didn't put his arm around his nephew and say, Son, living here is trouble. Don't live here. This is trouble. Why don't you why don't you leave all your stuff? You don't need stuff. And come hang out with me. It doesn't say it in scripture. Can't you imagine that happening? Dude, that's going to get you in trouble. Because that's the thing that fathers say to sons. That's the thing that people who are mature in the Lord say to people who aren't. Don't do that. That won't be good for you. And Lot just didn't listen. He just didn't listen. And sometimes we just don't listen. But God, back to our point number one, he rescues us even when we don't deserve it. All right, two more verses and we'll be done. Let's go back to this one. The the choice to follow the Lord is completely voluntary. And Lot made a bad choice twice. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is David talking about the Messiah. And then in Hebrews it says about Jesus, because Jesus lives forever, he is a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. Because he is a priest forever, he has a, a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he is always, he always lives to intercede for us, for you and me. And there are times in life you will say to yourself, Where is God in this? And why isn't he doing something? And this verse tells us he is doing something. He lives to intercede for us, to intercede, to to take up our cause. And he can do it because he's a priest forever. I mean, we have access to the Lord only because Jesus is this priest forever, and he offered a perfect sacrifice for us. I read a cute story about a guy named Ron Dunn. Ron had a 10-year-old son, and they were going to the carnival. And he said, okay, bring, you can bring six of your friends, and we'll go to the carnival. And they went to the carnival for his birthday. And if you know how carnivals work or it's a fair or something like that, but when you go in, you buy like a, a roll of tickets. And every ride you go on, you have to give them a ticket. So you, whoever, whoever is uh, the dad in the group buys a bunch of tickets. And so he bought a bunch, kind of a roll of tickets. And they would go to this ride and he would give out seven tickets because it was his son and these six friends. And he'd go to this ride and we'd give out seven tickets. And they got to the Ferris wheel and now there are eight of them. <laughs> There's a kid he doesn't know, and he says, well, who are you? The kid said, I'm Johnny. He goes, Well, why do you want a ticket? Why do you think I should give you a ticket? And he said, Well, I'm your son's new friend, and he said, You give me a ticket. <laughs> and he did. And it's a beautiful picture of, Okay, we've got a friend, and his name is Jesus, and we get in because he said we could. We, we depend on Him to get in. He lives to intercede for you. It's one of the greatest truths about the Lord that I know. He lives to intercede for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great day You've given us, this amazing story, how You, you intercede You step in, even when we don't deserve it. Thank you for that. May we walk in that truth this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.